Let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever met someone whose life was simply so good and beautiful that you thought inside of yourself, how could my life become more like that? How could my life become more that way? Amongst the several mentors in my life who have elicited that kind of response of holy ambition in me is a man who I never physically met. He lived uh, a century ago. His name was Aidan Wilson Tozer. And he grew up in a rural uh, community in uh, Pennsylvania. He migrated as a teenage boy to Akron, Ohio. And while wandering home from his work at a tire manufacturing company in Akron one day, Tozer came across a street preacher. And the preacher said, and this is the thing that stuck in Tozer's mind, the preacher said, if you want to be saved, call out to God. Just call out to God. And something in young Aidan's heart and mind at that moment was ready to do just that. He was ready for a larger life, a better and more uh, spiritually vital life than he had. And so he went home from work that day. He went up into the basement of his house. He knelt down on the floor of, of the attic of the house, and he knelt down on the floor of the attic, and he cried out through the rafters, God, please help me. Save me. Help me to know you more. And there began one of the great intentional journeys of faith ever recorded. There began one of the great journeys of discovering God ever recorded. Though he had no formal theological education, Aidan Wilson Tozer set about studying the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, searching for every indication he could find there of the character and nature of this glorious God who he believed with all his heart had saved him. And over the course of the next decades, this encounter he had with the ever-expanding understanding of God altered his life in dramatic ways and led him into a ministry of helping others discover the glory of our God. Tozer went on to pastor for more than 30 years, the uh, Southside Alliance Church right here in Chicago. He wrote more than 40 books Uh, Among them, The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy, now widely regarded the world over as among the great Christian classics. Though his intellect and his leadership brought Tozer tremendous fame and wealth, he and his wife Ada never owned a car. That was a choice. They preferred to travel by bus and by train and other common forms of conveyance in order to have more time to admire the glory of God's creation, to notice the little details of life, and to hold conversations with regular people. Though he was a man who earned a massive amount of income through his publishing works, all the way to the very end of his life, he gave away the vast majority of all of the royalties he received to meet the needs of the poor. His was a good and beautiful 
life. In one of his books, A.W. wrote something that still challenges me to this day and which forms, in a sense, the um, impetus for this series of reflections uh, in this series of sermons. And this is what he said. I want to share it with you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Man's spiritual history will never, or rather will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And no individual life, in fact, has ever risen to a greater level than its own individual idea of God, at least in the spiritual level of that life. Chuck Colson adds that no culture has ever been greater than its idea of God either because a culture is that way of life that grows up out of the cult of beliefs at the center of that society. And so an entire culture or society's life is dependent upon the root ideas it holds about God. A society will be as pure or base as the people within it entertain high or low thoughts of God, wrote Tozer. And if you ponder this, you will see this is really true. If we believe, for example, that there is no ultimate standard for life and for love, or if we think of God mainly as an indulgent grandfather, then our morals, our behaviors will tend to become primarily matters of convenience or social fashion. If our dominant idea of God, for example, is that of an angry judge, uh, eager to stomp on anybody who colors outside the lines of his will, then our way of moving through the world will tend to be fairly neurotic. It will be a psychology of anxiety, or it will give rise to a religion of jihad. It will create a certain kind of reality, that particular understanding of this angry, judging, harsh God. If on the other hand, our notion of God is as some distant deity who may have wound this world up but left it on the table to, to run on its own like a, like a watch, if that's our conception of God, or if we picture God as someone content to be our celestial 9-11 service, uh, one that would just be happy to have us never do anything with him except when we're in trouble, if that's our conception of God, or if we think of God as a being who is particularly enamored with our party or our nation or our tribe, it is going to create a certain kind of world, this belief system, a certain way of moving through this planet. We do our religion and our politics, is what I'm trying to say, or what Tozer was trying to say. We do our parenting and our working. We do our hating and our relating with others based on our idea of God, the one that we hold consciously or, or perhaps unconsciously. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? What's the picture that comes into your mind when you think about God? 
Because if Tozer was right, then that idea is the most important thing about you. And it's one of the most instrumental things by which you are helping to create this world in which we now live. In his wonderful book, The Good and Beautiful God, author James Bryan Smith suggests that our particular ideas about God get formed fairly early in life for most of us. They get shaped by the narratives and the experiences we have in our family's life. They get formed by the things that happen to us or that we hear about in the religious circles we occupy and the wider society that we inhabit. These understandings of God, suggests Smith, once in place, determine much of our behavior. Whether they are accurate or helpful or not, they still have this profound impact on our behavior. Once these stories are stored in our mind, they stay there, writes Smith, largely unchallenged until we die. They tend to run us or to ruin us. It is therefore tremendously important to examine the ideas that we have about God and to seek the most accurate ones possible. And that's why I want to invite us on a journey together over these months ahead, these next two months. It will be a journey of discovery like A.W. Tozer took. I want to invite you to join with me as we search the Bible for an understanding of the nature of this good and beautiful God to which it bears witness. I want you to seek to gain a vision, not to simply reaffirm everything you've already known about God, all the ideas that might have gotten put in place when you were a kid. I want to invite you on a journey in which you open yourself up to seeing God in fresh ways, to seeing the fullness of who God is. What we're going to do is look at just nine of the many more attributes of God's nature as they're understood by Scripture and by the great theologians through the years. And we're going to begin this morning by considering an attribute that theologians have simply entitled the sufficiency of God. The sufficiency of our God. My own initial thoughts about God were formed, like many of you, during my elementary school years. And they were formed for me uh, at the Hillside Church in Armonk, New York. My parents took me uh, there uh, most Sundays uh, during my grade school years. Doing Sunday properly in those days required wearing church clothes. How many of you are familiar with church clothes? Yes, I became very familiar with church clothes. I understood that they were intentionally asphyxiating. They were to keep you focused. They involved wearing very tight collars, uh, shoes that you would never be caught dead in in school, uh, and often a necktie and a jacket if you were a boy. And I absorbed the idea, I got the idea, that this painfully uncomfortable uniform was something God required in order to know 
if I and others were really serious about him. That's the idea that got planted in my mind. God needed me to dress up to show I was serious about it. God also, I found, needed us to go to uh, Sunday school in a mildewy basement. I, I understood from my earlier studies that there had been a time when Jesus actually was comfortable talking with people in togas and sandals and open-toed shoes and, and in cool places like beaches and in boats. But I came to understand that God had changed and that now he needed us to sit in hard plastic chairs in this mildewy basement. I also took in the idea that God felt it very important for us to sit in the least possibly comfortable pews uh, that, that could be engineered by a carpenter. And so we would sit in these very upright pews. There were no comfortable pink padded, pads beneath our posteriors. Uh, God uh, enjoyed seeing us in this particular uh, position. And I got the idea that God needed us to sing songs from George Washington's time. That was important to him. God liked that period of history. And it was important to him that we do so accompanied by musicians that had clearly learned their art at a funeral parlor. Um, Even though I now know I was entirely missing the point, the idea got planted in my mind nonetheless that church was basically... Hear me on this. Church was basically about meeting God's needs. He needs us to dress up and to tell him how great he is. He needs us. God needs us to read his book and sing his songs so they don't go out of print. God needs us to give money to his church and to volunteer for all of his busy activities so that his organization can go on. Can any of you relate to this impression? Maybe you got it when you were a child too. And even after we've grown up, many of us are left with this idea, maybe unconsciously, that the spiritual life is all about these oughts and shoulds and musts because there's just so much we need to do for God. He needs us to give. He needs us to work harder. He needs us to defend him out there in front of the world. God, we come to think sometimes, is awfully needy. Awfully insufficient without us. We're not the first people to come to that point of view. The Apostle Paul met a similar mindset in the people of Athens long ago. We read about it in Acts chapter 17. The Athenians, you have to understand, were religious people. They had erected shrines and spiritual symbols on just about every street corner of their capital city. They'd made a business out of doing church. I mean, they had spectacular buildings for doing church. They had wonderful rituals for doing church, and not just for Yahweh, but for all kinds of gods. 
And to make sure that they covered all the bases, they'd even put up an altar with this inscription, Paul found, that said, to an unknown God. In other words, they were relentless in at least superficially attending to the needs of any possible deity in the hope that if they covered all the bases, if there was a deity out there, he might bless them for it. Right? But this is the thought that the Apostle Paul sought to replace that idea with. The God who made the world, says Paul, standing up on the Areopagus, the public discourse mount of ancient Athens, the place where the great ideas of the day were being discussed, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, he says, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else, writes Paul, or says Paul. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is very near to all of us. For in this God, In him, we live and we move and we have our being. Do you see how very different this idea is, this conception of God, than the one I inadvertently took into my brain back in grade school? The message of the Bible, the countercultural, politically incorrect, religiously dangerous message of the Bible is that God does not need anything from us. Nada from us. God does not need our service. God does not need our temples, as beautiful as they are. God does not need our religious ceremonies. He does not need our affirmations of his worth. God does not need our nation. God does not need our political parties. God does not need our efforts to set the dress code. He does not need our efforts to set the times and the places and to organize everything else for him. God does not need us to try and structure reality on his behalf. He does not need us to understand him or feel any obligation to account for himself to us. God does not 
need human beings. And if we don't get this, our starting place for the entire enterprise of faith is wrong. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what the psalmist was saying there is that before the universe or anything else we see came into being, God already was and always would be. God himself, perfectly content, joyful, completely fulfilled in simply being himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is not lonely. God is not hungry for a project. God is not desperate for human beings because he needs something to do with all of his eternal time. God is sufficient in himself. And if you and I and this entire reality we call life were to go poof and no more, God would go on happily. God is self-existing. God is self-perpetuating. God is self-satisfying. And the first and most important attribute of God necessary for us to grasp is that he is utterly sufficient in himself. He is enough. For himself. He is God. And we are not. The mystery, the mystery is that this self sufficient being freely chose to create a species who could come to know him. That's the great mystery that we'll be seeking to understand better in these weeks ahead. The mystery is that he who is and always will be sufficient in himself desires for you and me to know him. He desires for you and me to live in relationship with him. He desires for us to be blessed by him. But the fact that he should desire to bless us in this way should not confuse us, even for a nanosecond, that it was because he somehow needs us or would be less without us On the contrary, it is we who need him. It is is we who are insufficient. 
without him. And this is the position of humble awareness with which you and I come to the table this very morning. Together with Christians across planet Earth, together with men and women and children and teenagers from east and west, from every tongue and all across time, we have dressed up in some measure. We have come to some building someplace. We have gathered beneath a tall steeple or in some mildewed basement someplace. We have gathered in front of the radio or the video screen not to meet any need in God, but because despite our blinding pride, at least some of us are at least dimly aware of how much we need him of how much we need his love to change our broken relationships and to alter our fragmented politics, how much we need his peace to quiet our anxious minds and to still our restless hearts, how much we need his wisdom to guide us through the maze of choices and seductions ahead of us, how much we need his forgiveness to lift the weight that we can't lift ourselves of all that we've done wrong and all that has gone wrong in our own character. We worship him because we know we need him. And here is the mysterious miracle that will meet you at this table today. This God who does not need from you or from me anything at all, has nonetheless desired to come to us in the person of Jesus Christ to offer us everything that we most desperately need. Truth, love, hope, peace, life, forgiveness. For my grace, he says, is sufficient for you. My power made perfect in your weakness. And so open yourself to me, he says. Feed richly. Drink deeply of my sufficiency and I will give you my life. Please pray with me. All sufficient God, you who are our source our Savior, our Sustainer. In humble repentance for those times when we have dared to think we were doing you a favor by the strength of our religious deeds, we come to this table today in our weakness 
Meet our needs, we pray. Fill our souls with the glory of your all-sufficient grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.